That was a section of Visions, the title track from saxophonist Melissa Aldana's new album, which features Sam Harris on piano, Joel Ross on vibes, Pablo Menares on bass, and Tommy Crane on drums. Melissa Aldana is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Hello, I'm Phil Freeman, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance podcast, which is part of the Osiris Network and partnered with Jambase. This particular episode is sponsored by Nugs.net. Nugs.net is the destination for live music on demand. They have a growing collection of over 15,000 full-length concert recordings from bands like Metallica, Sonic Youth, and Pearl Jam, so you'll never run out of live music to explore. You can listen to a show from last night or one from 40 years ago. I was a huge fan of Sonic Youth at the end of the 80s and beginning of the 90s, but the only time I ever got to see them live was in 1991, opening for Neil Young and Crazy Horse, and that wasn't really the ideal circumstance. So being able to check out the shows they've uploaded and made available, especially the ones from club dates in like 1987 and 88, is fantastic. It's available on desktop, iOS and Android apps, Sonos, and Blue OS. Just like us, the folks at Nugs.net are live music fanatics, so they're offering new subscribers a 35% discount on an annual subscription. Go to Nugs.net slash Burning Ambulance and sign up today, or if you already have a subscription, give the gift of live music to a friend. Again, Nugs.net slash Burning Ambulance for 35% off an annual subscription. Melissa Aldana is a saxophonist who's made five albums as a leader, beginning in 2010. She was born in Chile, and both her father and grandfather were saxophonists as well. She came to the U.S. to study at Berkeley, moving to New York after that. One of her major influences is Sonny Rollins. It was after listening to him that she switched from alto to tenor saxophone, and he also inspired her to record two of her five albums in trio format. The title track of her 2016 album Back Home is a tribute to Rollins, and when that record came out, I set up an interview between the two of them for Burning Ambulance, which you can read on the website. But don't get the idea that she's one of those players who, if you close your eyes when you're listening, you can picture their record collections. She's got her own compositional voice, and that's very evident on Visions. Uh, the album got its start when the Jazz Gallery commissioned her to write a suite, which she decided to base on the art and life of Frida Kahlo. Only a couple of pieces from the suite actually made it to the final record, but they fit very well with all the other compositions. It's a really interesting and beautiful record. The addition of piano and vibes really gives it extra dimensions and depths. We talked right at the end of May, right before the album was released. Our conversation covers a lot of ground, from her childhood to her various records to nerdy saxophone stuff. So I think you'll find it very interesting. I know I had a great time talking to her. Um, I will caution you that the sound fades out a few times because of the phone connection. I did what I could to fix it, but you may want to listen on headphones. I'm going to play another piece of music now. This is La Madrina, and then you'll hear my interview with Melissa Aldana.
So I guess I'll just sort of start at the beginning because, you know, I'm not sure, like, you know, I figure it's, it's best to sort of tell, you know, tell your whole story. So, mm-hmm. um, so you were born in Chile and both your yes. father and grandfather were musicians, right? Yes, tenor. They both played tenor. And did you ever, like, go to the studio with your dad when you were a kid or anything like that? Uh, no, I never recorded with him, but he, he used to record a lot of jingles, you know, um, like very short tunes or very short solos back in the day in Chile. That, that was how musicians make their living mostly. So I, I saw him many times recording and also playing in different venues as I was growing up. And at what point did your musical education begin? Like, did you say you wanted to play or was like an instrument handed to you? And it's like, you know, in this family, this is what we do, you know, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, no. Yeah, I I always follow my grandfather and my father for lessons. Since I was a kid, I was always really fascinated with it you know and also my dad has told me that you know when my mom was pregnant he used to play all the time and when I was a baby I used to fall asleep with the sound of the saxophone so it was something that always you know it always felt very natural for me so one day my dad was doing a, a group lesson um, and they were playing a tune called Brazil and he needed one more saxophone to play the harmony uh, behind the melody and I was just going around and I, w- I always asked him to give me the saxophone but I was just six like that so that day he decided to give me the saxophone he showed me how to play you know a few notes and I completely fell in love with the instrument I was crazy about it you know so next morning I follow my dad around actually for a few days telling him I'm serious I really want to practice teach me how to play you know and so did he take a, did it take a lot of convincing or was he you know supportive right away yeah, I, for what I remember, my dad wasn't really into the idea, you know. Um, but yeah, then of course he became a main teacher, and, and I was lucky enough to have a crazy man that would, you know, practice with me like eight hours a day and make me transcribe solos by heart, and you know, show me the love for practicing, you know, the love of the process, and you know, achieving something mm-hmm. since a very early age. And is that your your sort of approach to the horn the uh like really sort of studying and transcribing and stuff like that because i know some other players that i talk to will sometimes say like oh i don't practice in in quotes you know i just pick up the horn and i'll play for a couple of hours you know and stuff like that but i mean do you are you someone who pursues the you know really picking apart melodies and stuff like that Yes, I'm very, I'm extremely dedicated. Um, I, you know, I, I still do some transcriptions, but it's not necessarily horn players, you know, and I do it mostly for fun and just, just to keep, you know, trying to find something new. But, but I always practice basics a lot and always trying to think about how can I get a little bit better every day, you know, and that means a lot to me. And it's not, out of me wanted to be, you know, the best saxophone player. It just, it just makes me feel good, you know. And especially these past few years, where you know I had the chance to play so much and actually play my music and play with the people that I want, I feel like, you know, I would be a fool if I didn't take advantage and just, you know, try to practice and try to get better as time goes by as well. And do you feel like? technical mastery of the instrument 
fuels you creatively, you think, then? Uh, well, not necessarily, you know, but I believe, uh, you know, the reason why I want to own the instrument and be, you know, have, you know, as many, as much techniques and, you know, just have as much control as I can is because when the moment of playing, you know, I'm not going to play what I've been practicing, but I'm so connected to the horn that my ideas, you know, my, the horn doesn't get in the middle of my ideas and what I'm thinking, you know, I'm able to execute because I have absolute control of the horn. I, I hope that that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I get that. It's just uh, sometimes, you know, people have different approaches. Like some people feel like technique gets in the way for their, for what they're trying to do and stuff like that. So I'm curious where, you know, what yeah. you feel like the balance is. Yeah, you know, I mean, also, you know, the fact of, you know, doing so much ear training, I, I develop perfect pitch and, and, you know, I, I feel like, these are just things that help me to express more freely at the end of the day, you know. But it's, it's very personal and different from person to person. So as a kid, what kind of music did you listen to? Like, I'm assuming you didn't listen to just jazz as a kid. Were you into, like, pop music and stuff like that? Yeah, well, I listened mostly jazz when I was a kid because my dad is absolute fan, you know. So I grew up listening a lot of Return Forever, Weather Report, uh, the Breaker Brothers, you know, and then my parents used to love uh, the Bee Gees and then Toto, Irwin and Fire, uh, Stevie Wonder, you know, so I grew up mostly with that kind of music and then in my late teens, um, I really fell in love with uh, some, you know, Argentinian rock from one of the most important singer-songwriters, his name is Espineta, and, and I was in love with his lyrics and the sense of melody and, and harmony, so those are things that have influenced a little bit in the way that I write or at least in the way that I think about harmony. And I mean, you can learn a lot about horn charts and stuff from Earth, Wind, and Fire, so. Yeah, yeah, but I, yeah, I used to write, my dad was great about it exactly because of that, how the horns play together. So, I mean, I don't imagine that there were a lot of other kids your age that were interested in jazz, so was that, you know something that kind of set you apart or you know were you like were you known as like the nerdy jazz kid in your neighborhood or something or you know yeah it did seem, it did see me apart you know to be honest I didn't have the the most happy childhood you know for many reasons but one of those was that yeah I never I never felt like home in high school you know I was like a little bit more chubby I have um, how do you say it? those things that you put on your teeth when um, oh, braces? Braces, yes. And, and, you know, so I was a little bit more chubby, and then I was always on TV shows, you know, or I was kind of like the probably uh, child. But I went to a public high school that, you know, kids didn't know anything about it. And also, I was really nerdy. Like, I always have the best grades, and I was always just, like, reading a book or listening to music during the, you know, during the break. So, um, you know, kids like used to bully me a lot because of that. <laughs> Just because I was different and they were so mean because of like the way that I looked, you know. So at the end, I remember the day of the graduation, I didn't even go. I just got my diploma and never went back. And <laughs> yeah, so to these days, I haven't talked to any of those kids. But it's funny because they, there is some of them that write me sometimes messages, you know, and they, they follow me or whatever. But yeah. 
no beautiful memories from I mean beautiful memories from high school. <laughs> what uh, what kind of music is sort of traditional Chilean music? Because I mean I know in Colombia there's like vallenato and salsa and other stuff, and then there's like a whole range of regional Brazilian styles, and there's all sorts of Peruvian music. But I don't I don't know anything about Chilean music. Do you, what you know? Yeah. Uh, well, the name is Cueca, you know, and also, like, uh, Chile is such a long country that the kind of music changes from, you know, from place to place, you know. In the north, we're close to Bolivia, uh, to Peru, and we have Los Andes, you know, so the music is strongly influenced by those areas, you know. And then on the south is, uh, you know, La Patagonia, close to Argentina. So it definitely is, is changed, you know, and it has different names um, depending on where it is, but the typical name is Cueca, that's the folkloric music of Chile. Mm. Was there much of a jazz scene in Santiago when you were a kid? Like, did American musicians come through on tour and stuff like that? You know, not much. Uh, the, I, I did see, for some reason, uh, Mike Stern came many times to to Chile, and and he used to come with a saxophone player. His name was, I mean, his name is Joe uh, Franceschini. Uh-huh. Um, Paul Franceschini, I'm sorry. Um, and, you know, when I was a kid, he was so kind. He served me playing. He came two times to Chile, and one time he gave me, I tried his mouthpiece and for tenor, and back then I was playing a Michael Breaker mouthpiece. I was really into him. And he heard me playing, and I touched his mouthpiece. I was like, oh, wow, this is beautiful. Like, well, I would never get it, I guess. And he gave it to me. Um, and then... I think that like two years ago, you know, we've always been in touch, but two years ago he wrote me, he said that now my daughter is playing the mouthpiece, so I give it back to him. And so I, I, I was lucky enough to, you know, to meet musicians there. I remember seeing Ingrid Jensen two times. And then I think that the, the first like concert that really impacted me uh, was uh, Wayne Shorter when he went there in 2016. For someone who doesn't play the saxophone, what mm -hmm. does changing a mouthpiece do for you? Uh, well, not much if I don't have a clear understanding or trying to have a clear understanding of what I'm going for, you know. I think that, um, you know, sound is a concept. Um, and changing the mouthpiece won't really change, you know, maybe a few things here and there may change, but the you know, your actual sound doesn't change. So I never I never change um, mouthpieces that much, you know, also because I didn't have money when I was in Chile and it was hard to get mouthpieces. But so I usually still do one for a long period of time until something else came up. And, and these past two years, I feel like I have, a, you know, I'm getting closer to, I'm getting closer to play to sound the way that I'm hearing in my head, you know. And of course, it's always changed. But uh, my husband got a custom-made mouthpiece that I he left it aside for a few weeks, and I really love it. And 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 then I try and I play it for years, you know. And but I think that I was able to to enjoy the mouthpiece better because I had a clear understanding of what kind of sound I wanted to have. So. When and how did you 
move up here from Chile to New York? Was it just for school, or and were you originally were you in New York at first, or did you go up to to Berkeley, or you know? So I met Danilo Perez in 2015 in Chile, and he heard me playing and invited me to the Panama Disco Festival, and then he was kind enough to let me stay with with him and his wife for for a few weeks and I was able to do the audition for Berkeley College of Music and and I got a presidential scholarship which paid for housing laptop my four years of study so that was my the first time I came to the U.S. in 2007 January 2007 mm-hmm. um, and then I was in I was in Boston for yeah three years actually I finished college earlier because I stay every summer and I moved to New York 2010, right after graduation. You were uh, you were 22 when you made your first record, right? So who were the other players on it? I mean, I know Ralph Peterson, obviously, but uh, the bassist and piano player, were those like people you knew from school, or what was the deal? Yeah, Michael Palmer was somebody that I knew from, from Berkeley. Uh, we used to play a lot together. And then Lyle West, uh, He's a good friend of mine who um, introduced us, actually, uh, in Texas. So that's how we put the band together. And Michael also told me a lot to, you know, kind of put together the teams and organize the recording as well. And uh, you were you were signed for, for your first two records came out on uh, Greg Osby's Inner Circle label. Did you study with him at Berkeley? Uh, for a semester, you know, I took lessons with him and... He was a very important mentor for me. I really learned a lot from him about way of thinking, you know, and you know, trying to find something personal in the way that you play. So you had a good relationship with him because I know there there were some, you know, in a couple of years ago there were some accusations made against him and stuff that he was, you know, had inappropriate relationships yeah. with a student. But that was not the case with you. Everything was good. Yeah, you know, to be honest. Um, Greg has been one of the most supportive person I ever met, you know, um, when I was in Berkeley. And actually, I did, you know, I did love with him outside of school. Um, you know, I did, we went out to have dinner, but it was always about the music. He was always so respectful and so encouraging. Um, and really helped me a lot when I moved to New York. You know, he gave me my, my first week gig I played at the Vanguard. So, I, you know... I never had an ex- bad experience for him, you know, nothing more than respect and love and, and being thankful for what he did. You, uh, you wrote four pieces on that first record. What were you striving for as a composer at that age? Do you think you had a voice yet, or was it still, you know, developing? Of course. I'm, you know, I'm a, it's a still developing, and I probably never stopped developing, you know. Um, back then, I was just trying to you know, trying to find what is in my head, you know, um, and put that into a piece of paper, which is kind of the same thing I'm trying to do right now. And then on your second record, you re-recorded two of those pieces. So what were you doing differently with Free Fall and L-Line the, the second time around? I just felt like I had something different to say, you know, um, and I felt that I have the you know, the kind of maturity that I needed to play those tunes. So that's why I wanted to record them again. And on your third record, you actually gave your band a name, Crash Trio. So yeah. how did you connect with 
those two guys, Pablo Menares and Francisco Mela, and what about their playing made them the partners you were looking for at that time? Well, uh, with Pablo, Francisco, I know him from Berkeley, and Pablo has been a friend, you know, from from a really long time. And back then, Mela was like, you know, let's make this trio, let's just meet up at home and rehearse. So we were coming, we were going to his house like every Tuesday, you know, to to just play, you know, and and he was kind enough to, you know, let me bring tunes and and just figure out things as a band. And then, uh, back then we were playing a few gigs here and there. I had a new management on this side of whom I worked for, for, you know, for a long time. And and that was the year we were thinking of recording and that was the year that I won the man competition. Mm-hmm. And, and you know so when I got the record deal I already had this vision of what I wanted to do and this band was collective you know but we decided okay we're gonna make it unique to Dana and the Cratch Street and, and the Cratch is the name that Francisco Mela gave to the band uh-huh uh-huh what uh, yeah? What was your experience like with the Monk competition? Because I've I've spoken to a couple of other people who have competed in it, and so what's you know what's your take on on the whole the whole thing? I mean, obviously you know winning it was important for your career, but you know how do you feel about jazz as competition? You know, I think that you can't really judge art. You know, so. I went. I applied for the competition already knowing that you know it's not it's not about you know you can't judge who is the best. It's a lot of things you know. But I knew back then that uh, that competition would really help me to open doors you know, which is something that I needed. I felt like I had something to say, and you know I already started playing around the city. I already had I, I used to work with Kurt Rosenbrocken, manager Anders. Anders. Mm-hmm. So I already had some things going on you know. So I really I had a feeling inside of me. I was like you know. Let me see. The only, you know, worst case I don't get, and it doesn't matter. But if I get, it would be a good chance to, you know, be able to work too. You know, back then it was hard to pay the rent, and I had a lot of stress with those things. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I, I always, for me, the the preparation for the competition was mostly psychological. You know, because I always practice like eight hours a day from home. You know, today that is all what I care for so practicing more it wouldn't change what I would play but being aware that the most important thing for me was to just play as I will do at home whatever that means you know no show up no automatic pilot just trying to really be in the moment you know because I was playing for you know people that seen everything Jimmy Heat who spoke of claims uh, you know who used to practice with train wing shorter so I'm you know, I was like, who am I going to surprise? So for me, was the lesson was that, you know, if I'm able to go there and have fun, despite the, all the messed up situation, you know, how nervous we all are, like everyone's fighting, um, for me, that meant to win, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, my take on the competition, you can't really judge hard, you know, there's, there's a lot of political things involved, I'm sure, you know. Yeah, yeah. So they ask you to do a monk tune, I think, right, for that competition, and then something, and then like another piece. So was that? Did you choose "Ask Me Now" because that's the one that you did on the Crash Trio album? Yeah, but you know, it's because back then I was so into Josie Anderson, I was like crazy with it, and with that album, Live at the Vanguard, with Ron Carter and Al Foster. 
uh-huh. to play in the British and the Hockey now. Um, and I was just falling in love with the team that that's why I played. So was that sort of the arrangement that you kind of modeled your own on, or, you know? Because I'm curious uh, about, you know, arranging a monk tune for a trio without a piano, you know? Yeah, I mean, I never learned it, you know? I just learned the, the melody well, you know, I so a lot of versions. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've always been a big fan of Sandy, you know, so I, I learned most, mostly everything I know about, like, how to do introductions from ballads from Sandy, you know? So it's, it's just a conclusion, and also when I play the competition, you know, I really do play with the band, you know, and I read been a band leader, and I really had, like, you uh right around that same time you also played on your husband's album life sound pictures were you were you yeah. two already married by that point no no we've been married um years uh-huh uh-huh mm-hmm. did you meet in school or were you introduced by somebody how did you two you know um well, it's not really special. We met that small, uh, one of those late nights, you know. I used to, well, in the I used to go there every night, but because for years I used to go, you know, two times a week when I was in town, and uh, we used to take the same train back home for a while. So mm. that's how we met, and, you know, we fell in love. It's, uh, it's, not, it's not the most ideal, it's not what I wanted, you know, <laughs> to get married with an old but, uh, but it happened, and, and it's beautiful to have somebody that understands, you know, how much, how important the Catholic and, you know, how the family is everything. Yes, uh, I mean, being married to someone who plays the same instrument, like, have you ever found yourself playing something that you heard him practicing, or does he steal your ideas, you know, like, how does that, how does that pop up? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you know, I guess, uh, yeah, unconsciously, yes, you know, but we, we do have a practice room, so um, so most of the time we go there, but when, I, we're, when we're home, um, we hear each other's practicing sometimes, you know, sometimes I'm on the closet or just in the other room, but, but it's mostly, you know, it's just like inspiration more than anything, you know, like he's playing something cool and I go and I'm asking, what are you doing here? And then he comes and then, you know, trying mouthpiece, all those nerdy things that saxophone players do with the what, uh, on your fourth record, you were still working with Pablo on bass, but Francesco was no longer with you. You had uh, Jochen Reuchert on drums. So how did he change the music? Um, you know, he, he gave it like a completely different shape. Uh, probably back then, I mean, for sure back then, what I was hearing was more of the way that Jochen played, you know, regarding dynamics or just like a different set of that sense of direction so the yeah the only reason why i changed it too was because you know i felt like my head was in another place and i was looking something different back then from a drummer and i've always been a big fan of joking strange you know and also back then mel started being more busy and playing more so so yeah that's the reason why i chose joking with somebody that i had i have played before and i have always admired a lot and then last year uh, you and your husband made a whole album together, you know. Yeah. So, what was the creative process behind that? Like, were you listening to like a lot of Johnny Griffin and Lockjaw Davis albums or something? You know, <laughs> stuff like that. Like, 
<laughs> not necessarily, but I do love those albums a lot, and I had checked them out so much. Um, you know, we mostly work a lot on melody, you know, and we did quite a little bit playing with uh, with Greg and with Joe Sanders. And the reason why, I feel like that is one of, after my band, like that is definitely the band I learned the most when I'm playing, because, you know, Joe, I mean, everyone constantly just kick my ass, and, and it's beautiful, you know, playing with them. Uh, I learned so much about freedom in the music, you know, and it's all about talking to each other and trusting the direction. Um, so we just did a lot of playing, you know. Uh, you know, so we all very close friends. So it's a lot of trust in the music as well. That was a section of Elsewhere, another track from Visions. We'll get back to my interview with Melissa Aldana in a minute, but I want to mention one more time that this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast is sponsored by Nugs.net, which is the destination for live music on demand. They have a growing collection of over 15,000 full-length concert recordings from bands like Pearl Jam, Sonic Youth, and Metallica, so you'll never run out of live music to explore. You can listen to a show from last night or one from 40 years ago. 
Metallica used to have their own dedicated website for live recordings. They'd upload every concert they played within a day or two and pull shows out of their archives as well. The first time I saw them live in Newark in January 2009, I bought a download of the show about a week later. Now they've partnered up with Nugs.net, and that show and hundreds of others, going all the way back to 1984, are streaming and available for download right now. Nugs.net is available on desktop, iOS, and Android apps, Sonos, and Blue OS. Just like us, the folks at Nugs.net are live music fanatics, so they're offering new subscribers a 35% discount on an annual subscription. Go to nugs.net slash burningambulance and sign up today. Or if you already have a subscription, give the gift of live music to a friend. Again, nugs.net slash burningambulance for 35% off an annual subscription. And now here's the second half of my interview with Melissa Aldana. The, uh, the new record... You've got another new band, like it's a whole, you know, I mean, still Pablo on bass, but now you've got Tommy Crane on drums, who I'm actually not that familiar with, and then Sam Harris on piano and Joel Ross on vibes. So how long has this group actually been together and how did it, you know, assemble? Yeah, so uh, it is two years. Um Joel kind of started playing. I mean, Joel was not wasn't really part of the band, but I had him playing with me in a few occasions and also with some other projects of mine. Um, and I I just wanted to have another person playing the melody with me, and that is why I chose him. Besides just loving his playing. Um, so you know, after playing with Joaquin for a while and with Pablo, I really felt like I need something different. For me, every time. Maybe it's a little bit of a backwards pro- uh, process, but every time I record an album, it's an end of a period, you know. I feel like, okay, it's been two years, I practiced, I was trying to go in this direction, now it's time to forget about this and grind the music and move on, you know. Um, this time, I'm going to keep the band, but, but back then, I just really started hearing harmony. And the reason why I played trio for so many years is was because I wanted to become strong as an instrumentalist, you know. I wanted to have a strong sense of harmony, of melody, you know, and, and just being able to hold it on my own and, and be exposed and learn from that. Uh, so then I, I play with few piano players, but it took, me, it took me some time to figure out and being able to find somebody so special like Sam. Um, you know, besides him, you know, being an amazing musician and, and, you know, way more mature than me, which is something that to me is important so I can you know, I can grow and learn from them as well. Um, he brings something very special to the music, something very different, uh, something personal. Uh, the way that he comes and the way that he plays, it makes me think different too, you know. And so that's why I have Sam, um, Paolo, because, you know, he, I think that he has the job for life. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Tommy, I I call Tommy from the beat that Berlin because of my name my drummer had to cancel and I fell in love with his playing you know and since then I we play a lot we did a lot of touring uh, you know we became close friends and the music became so free some of the tunes that we on the album they're a little bit new but most of the music we played over and over and over for for a while so you know we really got to make it so open and different every night and it really helped me to have a, a, a good idea of what I wanted to record you know um, 
and then you know unfortunately now um Tommy lives in Montreal and you know he's on tour quite often so um Chris Abadie is going to be doing the rest of the gig for the for the year mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now the new record started out as a commission from the jazz gallery right so what exactly did that entail like what did you get from them and what did they want from you you know explain how this you know grants and commissions and things like that works in your world yes so Rio um, from the jazz gallery she called me and she asked me if I she told me that I was commissioned by the by them and they gave me uh, a big amount of money to write a new set of full music and to pay the musicians, you know, um, I just do work towards that. So I had half a year to work on, on music and I, I was trying to find a topic to be inspired on, you know, and I don't, I couldn't find many things I was actually really felt related to. And then I started remembering when I was a kid, I used to do transcriptions with paintings, you know, I was a big fan of Frida Kahlo, of Diego Rivera, and also it's another, a painter from Ecuador, his name is Guayas Amit. And I used to transcribe with all your, you know, with all your paintings. And so, you know, I was like, why not? I, I'm, I'm really fascinated by, you know, by other kinds of arts, especially visual arts, uh, about the process. And I always wonder how can, you know, how that could influence what I'm writing. Uh, also, Frida, you know, I always been fascinated by his stories. Her, yeah, by her life um, and the way that she paints and colors. But I have to say something that I, I didn't chose her because she's another female South American, you know, how it's, you know, it's been mentioned in some of the articles. I chose her, I chose her because she's an amazing artist and, and I feel very driven by her art. Mm-hmm. So um, I put the name of Vision for the, for the suite. Um, there is a story behind each part, you know, um, and then from the suite, I took the first and the third tune, La Madrina, which is based on a, you know, on a fiction story, and and add some old tunes that I have from before, and I go some new music, and that is what it became the album vision. So okay, so how many? So like two or three of the pieces on from the jazz gallery are actually on the record, or yeah, just two. Okay, uh huh. Mm-hmm. And then everything else was either pieces that you had ready or things that you wrote, you know, new before exactly. the session. Exactly. Are there any? Are there any other pieces on the record that are connected to like specific paintings or you know moments in Kahlo's life or anything like that? Like, what are the you know what are the inspirations for other tracks on the record? I mean, there is there is one that is called acceptance, you know, and it mostly talk about um, you know this process of Frida accepting who she was through painting, you know, and embracing her persona. But most of the things, you know, like the, the, the album is not necessarily inspired, the rest of the thing, not necessarily inspired on painting or something specific about Frida, but it's inspired on this idea of trying to write something that feels personal to me, you know, and that speaks to me and that is related to my life, you know. For example, there's a tune called El Castillo, the castle, and, and I wrote that tune inspired when I got married with Yudes. And we got married in a castle in Slovenia, you know. So I, one of the things I love about uh, when I compose, I love, 
I love to have a sense of narrative. You know, I love science fiction. I love um, um, I love storytelling. You know, so when I write most of the tunes, you can see a lot of sections and a lot of different directions because of that. You know, it's usually inspired on a you know personal story or journey or something that happens. And so does that translate to the larger scale as well in terms of like the sequencing of the album and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, no, not necessarily, but I I did thought a little bit about it. You know, like the album starts with Vision as my suite started, you know. Um, and the last... No, actually, you know, Phil, no, I didn't, I didn't... It wasn't really related to like time uh, events, you know. But the music, I the way that I did the sequence of the album was just by, you know, just trusting my instinct and trying to hear what was next. And uh, as far as like the writing and arranging and stuff, this is, I mean, this is the first album that you've made with a piano since your first, and now you've got the vibes in there as well. So, I mean, how did those elements change the way you approached the writing and the arranging and stuff like that? You know, funny thing is we haven't changed so much because when I was playing trio, I always heard all of this, you know. Uh, I always hear harmony, you know, I always hear counterpoint. Uh, I love counterpoint, I love, um, you know, different things going on at the same time in music, uh, different textures, you know. So that that was pretty much the same way that I thought when I was playing trio, but it was all in my head, you know. So um, they, they actually want to let you to play trio elsewhere, you know, and, and it's, it's exactly what I had in mind when Sam explained how we have also survived. Does it, uh, because there are other people in the group, obviously, does that force you to kind of stand back a little and not play as much as you otherwise would? Um, not necessarily, you know, because when I played three, I wasn't playing all the time. I don't I didn't tell them the history of playing. Um, so I'm not I'm not really skipping that, but it's one thing like you know that my compositions have become uh, longer and longer as time goes by. You know, so big parts of the pieces are just you know uh, too composed. You know. So live, are you you're not a player who you know starts and then finishes like 20 minutes later? Oh, you mean so long what? Yeah, yeah. You're not like a 20-minute oh, solo kind of a player? You know, I, I could go there. I mean, never 20 minutes. But, um, you know, oftentimes, it's because I really, I'm really trying to put something and I'm really trying to, or I feel extremely inspired, you know. So when that happens, because I, I'm really hearing it like that and I really feel like we, we have something to say, you know. I don't have, I mean, I never just play for overplaying. It's something that I'm very aware of when, when I'm on while well, I'm performing. Yeah, because that's, that's something that kind of interests me as, as a listener, is mm -hmm. when I hear players who are capable of like 20, 30 minutes, you know, of uninterrupted soloing, I'm always sort of curious what's going through their heads in the sense of like, you know, how do you keep pushing and how do you decide when to to stop so 
I mean, tell me about how that works for you. Like, how do you, you know, is does there just naturally come a moment where you where you tell yourself on stage, like, all right, that's enough for this solo. I'm I'm done. I gotta bring this, you know, I gotta bring this back down to earth now. Uh, yeah, but mainly maybe unconsciously, you know. I mean, of course, I be conscious sometimes that that happened, but most of the time it's unconsciously, you know. It's just following the instincts as ideas you know um sometimes when i usually when i take a long solo it's because i'm extremely inspired and i feel free in the music and i just i just, like those are the most those are the moments that i live for you know when when i'm just in the moment and i'm able to talk and everything flows naturally and it's good that's when i will take a good solo you know uh if it doesn't feel right i will just play and then stop when it's needed you know which usually is shorter time Mm-hmm. But but mostly it's funny because then when I'm when I'm actually playing and I feel so free, I come back to consciousness because I'm thinking how good I I am I'm, I'm playing, you know. So it's <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's a very interesting uh, it's a very interesting thing that is going on inside of my head, and I, I imagine some other musicians as well. It's funny, I just, just uh, last week I interviewed Carlos Santana and I asked him whether he has ever gone so far out on a solo that he needs the rest of the band to kind of pull him back in. And he said, all the time. Yeah. You know, he says, and, and I asked him if he had like, you know, a particular melody, that, uh, like a lick that he would play that would signal the band that it was time to sort of come in and rescue him. And he said, "Yeah, well, <laughs> you know." I love, I love that. I love that in musicians, the the search, you know, they just be there for the music. I, I think that's very important. You, uh, you don't play on other people's records very often. I, I was because I was looking up your, you know, your catalog and stuff, and it's mostly, you know, you've done a couple records with your husband. You've done one or two other things but otherwise it's mostly your own releases is that yeah. because you're focused on your own work or would you take those opportunities if they came along more often you know are you not somebody people call for sideman gigs like what's the situation nobody calls me <laughs> <laughs> nobody calls me to record <laughs> i don't know why but um actually i've been doing something i did i did record um more this year. I was on Carlos Enrique's uh, album uh, with the Octet, DC Conclave. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Then, sure, sure. I heard about that record. I haven't heard it, but yeah. I, I know it exists, yeah. And then I recorded with another piano player. I can't remember his name, but he's, you know, uh, he, I think he lives in New York. You know, I, I wasn't that familiar with him. Um, and then I'm going to we may record with Artemis, with the all-female start band with Rene Grossman, you know, at that point, Ingrid, Cecil McLaurin. And so that's it, you know, but it's mostly because people don't really call me to record, um, to record as a sideman. I never did that many gigs as a sideman until maybe it's weird, you know, that I start playing more and more. But, but you know, I, I think it was better because I feel like um, as a band leader, I had I had learned so much, you know, and I had gained a level of maturity that probably I wouldn't have gained, just, you know, doing Simon gigs and not trying to 
figure out what I want, you know, not being forced to face that. Uh, you know, also I have a deep understanding of what kind of musicians I want to play with, what I like in music, how I like to compose, like what about the sound, how to talk to people, how to, you know. So I think that that experience has been really valuable for me, you know. So now when I play with as assignment, I can, you know, I just have a better understanding of how things work. Do you uh, do you play out like guesting with people on stage and stuff like that? Do you you know like at you know jam sessions and stuff like that, or not as much will, since you were you know got out of school? Uh, no, I do I do jam. I mean I went to jam sessions uh, as most like for a good three four years you know every night, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm I'm just getting old and tired. <laughs> I don't have the same energy than before. But I used to go every night. I saw met everyone, and, and mostly I went there because I wanted to learn how to just be able to be in a in an uncomfortable situation, which was the jam session at Smalls, and and be able to play and make music out of that. You know, not automatic pilot. And every time I went to Smalls and play a jam session, I always came back home feeling so bad about my playing. You know, so I wanted to force myself to become stronger. You know, and just stronger as a musician. Um, and then these days, um, I haven't been in a jam session in a while, but, you know, when Jimmy Heath is playing at the Vanguard, I usually sit in with him or Al Foster or George Coleman, you know, I, I sit in with Kurt Rosen, Wilkin, with Cecil. Um, actually, I, I, I recorded on Cecil last hour when I, when I forgot to mention that I recorded one of the tunes, the one live at the Vanguard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um... So yeah, I still I still do that, but not definitely not jam sessions anymore. What do you think are the sort of the 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 biggest elements of your voice and style on the horn? Like we were talking before about being, you know, a master of you know of trying to master the instrument as much as possible. So like, what are your sort of key things that you you know? feel like are crucial to your style? Um, you know, I, I, to be 100% honest, I feel bad to even talk about my style because I don't feel like I have, you know, achieved anything at all regarding that. You know, I'm, I'm still, you know, waking up early every day and trying to practice and trying to figure out, you know. But if I could tell you a little bit about the process and how I think how things are getting, you know, are coming together as time goes by, is that there's three, you know, actually four very strong influences on the way that I play. And and what I'm doing right now is a kind of a conclusion out of that and, you know, some other things that I've been working too. But the first one is Don Bias, um, then Sonny Rowling, um, Mark Sparner, and then Lucky Thompson. Um, I mean, sorry, uh, Lionel Hampton. And so through the years, I had to check out a lot of, you know, just history and the history of my horn and, you know, all the players. But those those four musicians really resonate with me, you know. So right now I'm trying to think, for example, how can I, you know, how can I mix everything together and make it mine, you know. How can I bring how Sonny played the ballads into my tune, you know, how can I, how all that comes together, you know, so some of their answers just been answered with experience and just kept playing and kept, you know, just trying to push it and try to keep better. 
But mm-hmm. I would say that I'm trying to find the balance between the old and the new and, and what I want to say. Yeah, because I'm kind of curious how you sort of bridge the distance between Sonny Rollins and Mark Turner, who are sort of very different players. Yeah, I mean, there is, you know, there is things I love about both of them. You know, Sonny, I have to be honest, Sonny is still to this day, I listen to him and I'm just, I melt. You know, he's, he's very deep in my heart. Um, and he's a kind of player, you know, that he has so much humor in the way that he plays you know he he's funny to me he quotes all these things and you know it's, it's really like hearing it's really like hearing him talk in real time you know and and connected with the band and it's so organic but that is something that really resonates with me a lot you know the way that he blows on the low part of the horn i love it and the mark i love how he plays on the high part of the horn he's my favorite saxophone regarding that you know so everything that I play on the high register, I got it from Mark, you know, I love how he develops harmony, how he works with voices. And so these past few years, I'm just trying to figure out how to connect those things, you know? And as far as the, uh, the physical aspect of the horn, like, is it because you're, you know, you're a woman, you're a smaller person than Sonny physically. So is it, are you capable of getting that sort of big sound? you know or is it more of a challenge for you you know from a from a physical standpoint no not at all you know i think that um when it comes to the horn you know you just practice you know and if you practice in the right way you know gender don't really matter it's just all about like the time the amount of time that you invest into your craft you know and then when it comes to sound and expressing yourself i believe that sound is a concept in my experience, you know, I don't think sound is, you know, experience, influences, ideas, uh, what you hear, what you're coming from your friends, that the sound is, is the way that you inform yourself through the experience, is your conclusion. So, you know, being a female or a guy, I don't think that that is related at all, you know, but even though I'm contradicting myself because when you know, when it comes to sound, I'm saying you express yourself as an individual. So being a female or a, or a male is going to influence you as an individual. But I hope you get my point. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just curious about it as almost like an a, like a like an athleticism sort of a thing. Because, for example, there's a famous story that Peter Breitzman, the saxophonist, broke a rib playing once. You know, and I don't think I would ever hear that story about a female saxophonist. You know, but yeah. maybe that's because of you know the psychological approach to the horn, which goes back to sort of the the forty-five minute solos that you you know would get from like Charles Gale or somebody. You know that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm curious more of that. <laughs> but yeah, it's a good question. So. Do you think you're going to continue working with a larger band going forward, or because you were saying you you know you you record when you come to the end of a creative cycle? So I mean, are you going to go back to a trio, or do you think you're going to stick with piano and vibes and maybe you know put a larger band together or something? Yeah, no, I'm I'm sticking with the idea of because I want to squeeze it and see until work and I go. You know, I really. I really want to try to to compose more and more. I've been writing a lot of music lately, and I just really grow in that sense, you know, just trying to find something personal that speaks to me and 
it feels good, you know. Um, so I'm gonna, I'm, I'm planning to keep playing with piano actually, but I'm gonna, I'm going to Europe on a tour and I'm actually taking a, a guitar player, Lucky Lou, because Sam couldn't make it, and Lucky is somebody that I always wanted to play with. So I have this vision of making the vision quartet uh, with with Sam and and Lucky and and maybe having girl boss, but. I definitely want to keep developing and, and squeeze it until it feels like I need something completely different again. And what else do you do besides, you know, record and play? Do you teach? You know, do you like? Do you do anything else to, you know, to make a living as a musician? Like, how does it, uh, you know, how does it all yeah. fall together as a lifestyle, or as a, you know? You, you know, I have to tell you, I'm I'm extremely lucky that I can just go and perform and do what I want you know I haven't had to take any teaching job or or anything you know and when I'm home I'm, I have all day to practice and then go and play with my band with people that I like so in that sense um, it's great you know it is quite in, it is actually it has been quite intense because it's been now many months just of a lot of work you know but also I'm, I'm thankful for the experience to be able to practice and also perform and grow um, one thing that I do quite often are residencies, you know, I was, I just did one at Berkeley where I was coaching an ensemble, I do some summer camps with Julia, and then, you know, I went to North Texas as a guest artist, I teaching, I was teaching in Groningen Conservatorium, you know, as a residency twice, so I, I do quite a lot of, like, educational things, and I really enjoy, you know, talking to young people, um, about the process, about you know, teaching them about loving the process to practice and you know, just doing whatever you do in life on the highest level. And I feel like I never had the chance to have somebody close to my age to talk about those things or talk about how important it is to transcribe and go and show examples. You know, so I love I love spending time with students, and I can see myself when I get older and tired of moving around. I I will definitely love to teach. Have you uh, have you gone back to Chile much as a performer? Like since you've you know made it here or you know gotten to the level that you've gotten, have you toured down in South America much? Uh, yes, not as much as I would like, but I've done things there. I, well, I did a mini tour in in Brazil. I've been in Argentina. I I was in a lot of parts in Colombia, and in Chile I go every year. I'm very lucky. I have a really supportive country they they gave me twice the highest price for art uh two years ago and you know it's always interest on what i'm doing following every year i go i i get to play it's always packed people follow spicy cd so i think it's their time of the year that i sell the most cd usually so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very lucky in that sense to get go back and, and feel the support from my from my country like that Okay, that was my interview with Melissa Aldana, and that's the end of this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Before I go, I want to point out that while this episode had a sponsor, that's the first time in 39 episodes that that's been the case. So if you'd like to support Burning Ambulance directly, please consider becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll help me keep the podcast going and add more content to the website maybe even pay some of the really excellent writers who are currently contributing for free. Uh, 
And as the number of subscribers increases, I'll start creating exclusive content, whether it's longer episodes or interviews that are just for patrons. So if you can, please visit patreon.com slash burningambulance and sign up. Like I said, it's just $5 a month. Thanks, and thanks for listening. I hope you'll come back for the next one. Osiris.